Welcome to Vital Talks Listen, the podcast accompaniment to Vital Strategies speaker series on public health. I'm Steve Hamill, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sandra Mullen, Senior Vice President of Policy, Advocacy, and Communication. Vital Talks is a project of Vital Strategies, a global public health organization that is seeking to reimagine public health towards a world where everyone is protected by an equitable and effective public health system. This year, we want to bring you along on an in-depth journey, starting with a mini-series featuring the people who are daring to reimagine and do public health differently. If you would like to learn how innovators are tackling the world's biggest health problems, please hit that subscribe button and follow the stories that are changing our world. This year, we're looking for sponsors to support our Vital Talk series. If you're an organization or individual interested in supporting thoughtful discussions around advances in public health, feel free to drop us a line at vitaltalks at vitalstrategies.org to learn more about sponsorship. Sandy, we're jumping off of our first two-part podcast episode where we listen to different perspectives on health equity from different experts in the field of public health and development. And following that, we decided to spend this episode talking to two people who are working to increase collaboration between, quote-unquote, Global South nations. As we listen to these two interviews, is there something you think our audience should keep top of mind or listen out for? Yeah, well, Steve, thanks. I think these were terrific conversations. And the thing that really stood out for me is the whole idea of turning the current power structures of public health on its head. And it really made me hold a mirror to even our own way of doing work, um, where there is this value of, of speed and urgency and quick wins and, and about bringing programs to the global south from us and the global north. I think we're learning a lot. And I think these podcasts uh, are another example of how even though we're actually steering the conversation, we're learning just as much, if not more, by asking the very questions that we're putting before people. I love that. Okay, let's give a listen. Thank you for having me. My name is Dr. Mamka Anyona. I am uh, the Policy and Strategy and Operations Lead for the UN Multipartner Trust Fund for Non-Communicable Diseases and Mental Health. Very long name, uh, but we call the Trust Fund the Health for Life Fund. Uh, that's a public-facing name that is less um, intense. Mamka, it's a pleasure to have you on Vital Talks, and we're speaking to public health leaders who are working on new approaches, and in this episode, we're investigating new models for collaboration, and we've come across the Health for Life Fund. Can you share what the Health for Life Fund is, and why is this important? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the Health for Life Fund is, uh, is a partnership between uh, UN agencies uh, in, and, and countries in support of uh, countries advancing their programming for chronic diseases and mental health. So this trust fund was formed uh, with the leadership of WHO, UNICEF, and UNDP, uh, but it is, uh, it is its primary supporters, uh, three countries, Kenya, Thailand, and Uruguay, who are its founding strategic partners. And so these partners together are, um, are urging uh, partners and development partners across the world to pull funding 
to provide support to countries uh, for NCDs and mental health. Um, so it's a pooled fund. Uh, it is one of uh, a number of uh, UN multi-partner trust funds, uh, but it is unique in that it is um, in that in that it is the only fund, uh, the the only pooled fund that is addressing uh, NCDs and mental health, which are like uh, traditionally very neglected areas of global health, yet they are the leading causes of death and disability worldwide. And they are increasingly a burden, especially for low and middle income countries, which do not, um, many of which require some catalytic support to be able to get uh, their programming going and to get their health system strengthened for addressing these conditions. That's, I mean, it's amazing. You're working on two huge problems at once. And the first is the health burden of non-communicable diseases like cancer mm -hmm. and diabetes, which, as you said, are skyrocketing, especially in low and middle income mm -hmm. countries. And you're trying to reimagine the development system and have this peer-to-peer -peer or global South-led model. Mm -hmm. What, besides the health burden, are there other drivers mm -hmm. for approaching this problem differently? Absolutely. So this fund was actually almost a decade in the making. This fund uh, is a direct response to, uh, to uh, uh, the demands coming from countries themselves. And these were expressed in different settings, like the UN ECOSOC, uh, where countries... Um, you know, which is a member state organization uh, of the of the UN, where the countries express their need for uh, for a catalytic fund for NCDs and mental health. And in other settings, uh, countries have expressed their desire to have this type of support that has traditionally not been provided. So, you know, so the health burden is one that countries directly face, and it is uh, and it has this great impact not just on their um, on on health and and the wellness of people, but we all know that the, that NCDs and mental to health have dire impact on the economy, and they are, you know, they're one of the contributing factors to trapping a lot of countries in this middle-income trap, where the, a lot of uh, productivity is lost because these diseases affect people who are in their productive years, and they cost so much uh, to uh, individuals, to families, to economies, and so. You know, seeing this burden as it has been rising is the reason why uh, countries came to the UN saying we need a solution. And this trust fund is a direct response to that, to that demand. And it feels like the way you're going about this also is a mm -hmm. comment on sort of the existing power structures and how development, quote unquote, development systems mm -hmm. center the countries and people that have resources. And you flip that with this kind of peer-led mechanism, how do you think that might shape the outcomes of this fund and of the, of the kind of actions that countries might prioritize? Great. That's a great question. So I'll just say a little bit first about the, the way the trust fund uh, has gone about uh, addressing this demand from countries. So you are very right that uh, the trust fund is trying to do this differently and is trying to also respond to this global uh, seismic change in, in, in global development. Every other sector in global development now has a decolonized global something, um, you know, in front of it. So whether it's decolonizing capital or decolonizing global health. And so the, the trust fund was formed in the heat of the COVID uh, pandemic, which I think was a great contributing factor to the way the trust fund ended up being shaped. Um, the decolonized global health movement had been gaining momentum for a while, even before the pandemic. But the way the pandemic played out and the ways in which the global solidarity around global health was shown to be kind of just a facade or like, a you know, fair weather uh, uh, cooperation, uh, where a lot of global south countries were left to 
compete um, and were left with their own devices to compete in the markets for PPE, for drugs, for vaccines, um, and where the global north uh, that has always fashioned itself as a as you know the leader, the, the supporter of this international collaboration and international solidarity, um, it, it showed that there's something you know it, it showed even more than we already knew that there was something wrong with the dynamic where uh, global health was primarily led from the north, uh, with the south as kind of like a subject um, of this discipline. And so when this uh, uh, when this trust fund was being formed, it was important for us to take this into consideration and to make sure that this trust fund does not replicate models that have already proven ineffective or proven uh, to um, further reinforce some of these dynamics. And so... Um, and so one of the first things we did, uh, and this is very well articulated in the trust fund's founding documents uh, in these terms of reference, is that the trust fund is a country-led mechanism. It was formed in response to country demand, and these are mostly low- and middle-income countries that needed support. And so all funded projects have to be designed and determined at country level. So the trust fund does not have programs that it is attempting to impose upon countries. Uh, the countries are the ones who are going to identify, who are the best place actually to identify their own needs, identify interventions, and seek support. Uh, from the UN system and from this trust fund to be able to kind of advance in those areas. Another way was that in this governance, uh, where traditionally there's always a global north-based anchor donor, usually a member state, because a lot of uh, technical support is also very global north to global south. It's very uh, uh, one-directional. But then this was a desire to create, you know, recognizing that that um, the Global South are not just recipients, quote unquote, that there's a lot of knowledge, there's a lot of experience, there are a lot of resources um, of very many kinds that these countries have that they can share with one another to each other's advantage. And so it was one of the primary things that the, all the founding strategic partners asked us for is that one of the things they want to be able to bring to the table is all the knowledge, all the uh, the learning and all the skills that they have uh, in, in creating very successful interventions uh, in res relatively resource-constrained settings, and they want to be able to bring these learnings to other countries. So this is another way in which this fund departs from, uh, from others. But this, um, this country-led approach where the, the government, the UN system, are leading a collaboration of, mul of multiple stakeholders uh, within the area of interest ensures that this sustainability, that this, that all activities that are funded through the trust fund are built into country plans, are incorporated into country budgets eventually, and that they are sustainable uh, in the long run. And that is, then you have a truly catalytic fund. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to ask about, uh, in one of our prior interviews, mm -hmm. where we talked with people about perspectives on equity, one of our experts mentioned about the difficult dimension of working with speed or urgency. Mm -hmm. you know, on the one hand, we feel like there's this incredible global health burden. We have to act now and mm -hmm. sort of re rescue as many people as possible. But on the other hand, I think we're learning that the process is as important as the outcome if we want mm -hmm. sustainability. And do you feel that tension within the fund to think we have to raise money fast and get it out into the field and launch these NCD programs? And then on the other hand, you're trying to work, you know, one might criticize and say almost bureaucratically in a way mm -hmm. that that really mm -hmm. builds consensus and that can feel frustrating when you mm -hmm. when you really want to launch programs how do you navigate that uh, absolutely. I think this is a daily struggle personally, and, and I'm sure if you ask anybody on our team, this is the case. Um, and so maybe just to, to first, like, just to speak a little about how it, it expresses itself or manifests uh, in the fund is that, you know, uh, we are, uh, you know, we are a relatively new fund, uh, but at this point in time, we are still... 
seeking partnerships. And a lot of the negotiation with partners is that partners um, often tend to have, especially partners from the private foundation um, and, and corporate uh, part of, of, of philanthropy, tend to have very specific ideas about exactly what they want done. And these ideas, while a lot of them are good and a lot of them have been very helpful in the world, are not necessarily always applicable directly uh, in countries. And it is very important, uh, you know, to kind of like, so that the negotiation where, you know, partners are beginning to understand that perhaps they need, there needs to be that openness to the idea that, you know, that we need to leave room for countries to be able to determine their priorities. We need to leave room uh, for countries to be able to, uh, to design the programmatic interventions that, uh, that are required in their cases. This has led to, to some of the, you know, some of the slow motion that this, uh, that this trust fund has been experiencing compared to other very like uh, strictly programmatic programmatic, you know, with very discrete uh, programmatic um, portfolios. Um, and, and of course, as I said, consensus building is also really, you know, a challenge because we have partners uh, at the global level, that's the three UN agencies, the three founding strategic partners, and a country level for every proposal, we're bringing together a lot of partners as well. And that does slow things down. But the reality is that unless we have this process, the kind of systemic change that is required to address, because NCDs and mental health issues are going to be a long-term problem. We will never eliminate, you know, these conditions forever. You know, so, so it is very important that any change that is made is very lasting because it will need to be the building blocks of a very durable model of addressing these conditions uh, for a very long time. We're talking to all kinds of change makers like yourself on what has to happen more broadly in the field of public health. How do you think we need to adjust to this new reality in the pandemic equity, you know, exposed era? Any, any thoughts for the field at large? That's such a grand question. <laughs> grand theories. Um, let me see. I mean, I think the first is just to approach, uh, to have a, a, a more, um, I don't know whether I'd call it like a learning mentality um, because I think the field of global health and global development generally has a lot of quote unquote experts, which, which in itself implies, you know, a, a knowledge dynamic where knowledge exists in one space and it doesn't exist in the other. And these experts will come give the knowledge. But the truth is that that's not really the case, right? Um, nobody really has all the answers. If they did, we would not be where we are today. So I think the first is just to adopt a knowledge uh, or a learning kind of mentality uh, and to have a degree of humility uh, and to recognize that uh, a lot of what has been done so far has worked and has been beneficial, but there's a lot that hasn't worked. And to have that willingness to kind of, um, you know, ask those hard questions, have those difficult conversations. This has been said ad nauseum, but I think it matters who is sitting at the table when decisions are made, because the perspectives that come with that are so incredibly different. Um, and so I think there's a need uh, for a lot of global uh, entities to really incorporate in a real way, you know, not in a tokenistic way, to include voices from the global south uh, in their you know, in their technical teams, in their leadership, because I think that will fundamentally change the way global development is done. But another thing that I think needs to happen as well is that I think the global south itself needs the kind of 
raise its own voice. And I, I appreciate that that is starting to happen in many spaces. And I, there's a lot of exciting, you know, stuff happening. Like the, um, you know, like I love that there are all these regional collaborations uh, that are growing around health. Like um, in Africa, the Africa Union really stepped up during you know, for the COVID uh, response and Africa CDC has really been able to take up the mantle for health on the, on the continent, um, which has been really strong. Uh, and so they've been a really strong voice in kind of reshaping the narrative of public health in Africa and really positioning Africa as, as a, an equal player on the platform. So I think that that is a really great thing. You know, even just this visibility into the importance of this South-to-South cooperation frameworks itself is a strength. So I think a lot is happening. I think there's still a lot. There's a very, very long way to go. But I think having an open mind, I know that sounds kind of trite, but like just being aware that learning can always happen and being open to learning, I think, is, is fundamental. And if you were going to send a message back in time to your 21-year-old self, what, what mm-hmm. would you tell her? Wow. Um, worry less. <laughs> um, but um, other than that, wait, what else would I tell her? Um, to be steadfast to what she believes in. Because even when, you know, like I remember going into a lot of these spaces um, and posing a lot of these questions about these dynamics, even before people were talking about it. And, you know, you get inquisitive looks and sometimes you think, oh my gosh, am I saying the right thing? Am I thinking the right thing? Could this be possible? Am I, may I, am I the one who's confused? Um, but over time, you know, as, as, as more people have said this, you know, I mean, there's that... Um, vindication, but I don't know whether the vindication is as important as the fact that it has taught me to, you know, to start to be steadfast, even when I'm the only voice uh, in the room speaking to what I believe in. And so I would, I think that's what I would tell her to just, you know, remain steadfast to what she believes in, to her values. Appreciate that. Dr. Manka Anyona, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and insights with us today on the Vital Talks podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, invite me again soon. I'm Dr. Majita Mchengeti. I am the acting head of department of the National Cancer Registry of South Africa. Dr. Majita, welcome to Vital Talks Listen, the podcast. We're so happy to have you. The topic of this particular podcast episode is collaboration in the quote-unquote global south, and we learned about the IARC-GICR Collaborating Center in Johannesburg that is helping tackle cancer across five countries in Africa. Can you tell us about the National Cancer Registry in South Africa, where you are the acting head and the collaborating center? So the National Cancer Registry of South Africa was established in 1986. And since then, we've been uh, collecting uh, pathology-diagnosed cancers throughout the countries. And this is both in, throughout, the South Afri- throughout South Africa, and this is both in uh, the public sector, that is the government, and also the private sector. The, the South African Cancer Registry is also uh, part of the African Cancer Registry Network, and it is through the African Cancer Registry Network that um, we became part of um, a community of cancer registries uh, that are attacking cancer together. And, and, you know, when many people think about top health issues in Africa, they think of malnutrition, HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, is kind of what comes to mind. You know, why is cancer important to focus on? Can you tell us more about cancer in Africa? Um, so um, in Africa, 
infectious diseases are very common, you know, like TB, like HIV. And because of this, there's a lot of funding uh, and it is really justified to put a lot of money in these um, infectious diseases because of their potential to spread and cause, you know, an epidemic or a pandemic. Um, however, particularly in recent years, where um, with improved uh, treatment of TB, with improved treatment of HIV and access to treatment of HIV, people are living long enough to, uh, to get cancer. So the life expectancy in South Africa has increased because of availability of antiretroviral treatment. Though the HIV burden is high, people are living long enough to get cancer. And also there are infectious causes of cancer. Since we have lots of um, infections, high prevalence of infections in Africa, some of those infections also cause cancer. And then as well, there is also influence of um, Western lifestyles. So people are eating more processed food, they're not moving as much, and um, all these diseases that um, were are previously associated with like a Western lifestyle are becoming more and more common in the African setting. And secondly, when the, the improved control of infectious diseases, uh, initially we were having a lot of people dying of infectious diseases. We still, we still do. But right now the commonest cause of death in South Africa is now non-communicable diseases. So that means that um, we should then um, change the way we, we fund these diseases. We should have to think new ways of how we tackle these diseases because the disease epidemiology is changing. So it sounds like the the collaborating center and this this you know uh, partnership between multiple countries to measure the burden of cancer is partly in response to a lack of funding. Um, is that the main problem? There are other problems that are associated with measuring cancers, so that that governments can create plans to address them. Tell me a little bit more about the collaboration that's happening between the countries. So the Global Initiative for Cancer Registry Development from the International Agents in Cancer has regional hubs all over the world. So the regional hub for cancer surveillance in Africa is the African Cancer Registry Network. But within that hub, there are then smaller collaborating centers to further organize a networking of smaller groups of countries and um, also to be specifically responsible for specific goals. So within uh, the African Cancer Registry Network, which is our regional hub within Sub-Saharan Africa, we have three collaborating centers. So we have uh, one in Abidjan that is in Cote d'Ivoire. This is Western part of Africa. This is French speaking Africa. Then we have one in the eastern part of Africa, that is sort of in the middle of the continent, that is in Nairobi in Kenya. And then uh, the third one is then in South Africa, which is Southern Africa. So this, um, this is, um, that is us in Johannesburg. And you know, our main role, our strength in, in South Africa, because we've been having only a pathology-based registry all these years. So we are only new to population-based registration, but our strength has been research, epidemiological research, record linkage studies. And because just building onto that expertise that is already existing, we are then responsible for childhood cancer, 
training of staging uh, within the continent and also record linkage studies between cervical cancer screening registers and uh, population-based registries so that we can assist countries in monitoring um, cervical cancer control. So it sounds like this, you know, collaboration and, you know, inter-African country exchange is a, a great answer to low capacity or gaps in any particular country. Each country doesn't need to have its own standalone capacity in every area. You know, some countries may have experts, some are great at training, and then the peers are leveraging that. Um, is it is this collaboration working? Can you paint a picture of you know an example of how this is really functioning well? So this collaboration allows um, leveraging of resources, not only human resources in terms of technical expertise, but it also allows leveraging of financial resources. We are learning from our peers and. Um, it gives this sense that there is no one person who's an expert in everything, but all of us, you know, we are stronger together. They are teaching us what they are good at, and we are learning from them with from what they are good at. And they, it just fosters this South-to-South unity and respect within the community, knowing that um, we are able to to learn from others. So it's it's been a... It's been a great experience, and it's actually fostering even friendships in, within the cancer registration community on the continent. And big picture, you know, given the burden of cancer, it's escalating. It's a serious cause of mortality in um, your region. Why do you think it's so difficult to find resources to fund work like yours? I think uh, for a long time, it's um, there's been a myth that cancer is really a disease of the West. Um, and um, this, there's a bias of life expectancy. So if African populations are not living to the age where they would acquire certain cancers, then we would think that they, um, there's less cancer in Africa. And there was also um, a diagnostic bias, you know, just lack of knowledge of cancer symptoms and, you know, getting, lack of access of getting diagnosed early. So sometimes um, we have, uh, and also we don't have a lot of cancer registries, functional population-based cancer registries on the continent. So there's no data. So because there's no data, there might be the false impression that this is not a big problem. So making sure that, uh, cancer registries are able to collect data efficiently uh, allows then um, the disease, the burden to be well characterized and then people to actually know that this is a big problem. So this is partly the reason there's poor funding for cancer because there's a, there's a false um, perception that it's not a big problem in Africa and uh, that it's really a problem of the West and we just have very little cancer in Africa. I've heard you say previously that everyone wants data, but nobody wants to pay for surveillance, which it sounds like part of what you're describing. If you could wave a magic wand, how would you reshape the systems you work under so that the resources match the burden as you're describing it and and as you see it? I think that um, the situation that we had with COVID in South Africa was. it was a, a proof of principle that the, it is possible to do precision public health 
in a middle medium income country in Africa, because uh, South Africa was producing daily stats every day. We were harmonizing uh, COVID stats from the whole country, both private and public. And each day we were able to produce a report uh, telling not only the incidence of COVID, but also mortality of COVID and the number of people admitted and the people with comorbidities. So that in itself was able to prove that it is well possible to collect all cancers. If we are we're doing this daily, then annually it would be possible for us to collect cancers that have been diagnosed clinically, in the lab, radiologically, as and also the comorbidities that those people have or complications and the mortality and survival of those people so that we can inform the policies that, we're, um, that we are making. Because the, what was happening in COVID over a very short space of time, you could see from infection to policy. Because in the evening, we would then wait to hear the announcement from the president about the next steps as to what is happening. So you could see that data had moved and had been translated and had already gone to the highest authority in the country and was immediately communicated to the people at risk as to what behavior they have to do so that they can uh, alter their own risk. So similarly, we can apply that precision public health that we did in COVID. And it happened in a medium income country, even to the extent where we were able to characterize new um, uh, variants of COVID and um, to alert the world to, to, to be uh, on alert that they can also protect their own population. So in the same way, we can be able to do this for cancer because the same platforms that we used should now be leveraged to, to do this for cancer, um, not only for an immediate threat, but for a continuous threat of cancer. And we're interviewing on our podcast this year change makers and experts uh, about the big picture of public health. What has to happen broadly for our field to become more equitable, more impact, you know, to more closely mirror the actual problems in communities, health problems and social determinants. Thinking about our field, public health as a whole, what do you think? What can public health do to become bigger, better, stronger, bolder? Um, so previously, the field of public health, particularly global health, was mostly driven by the West. And um, most of the partnerships were, um, you know, not South partnerships. There were very few efforts to foster South to South partnerships. But I, I find that um, particularly the way we are working in the collaborating centers where, yes, we do have partners in the West, but we also have a whole lot more partners in the South, the people who are uh, on the African continent, people who are experiencing exactly the same problems that we're experiencing. And just to be in a room with those people to brainstorm about uh, practical ways of, of uh, tackling the problems. The model of public health that um, allows strengthening of um, networks within um, 
the continent. It allows us to strengthen our relationships and to learn and to see how, how to make policies in our own setting. But it also gives us the power to approach government as a collective. Because most of the time, the people who are working in registries, they're very small fish in the whole hierarchy of the health delivery system. So they cannot, um, they don't have the power or the influence to be heard. But the moment we um, we have the backing of the IACGICR of the WHO, uh, we, we, we get a voice and um, governments and um, people of influence then listen to the problems that we put forward. I love that you're describing collaboration as being productive on so many levels, uh, unveiling local contextualized problems, sharing resources, and also garnering influence, you know, power that you need to influence the agenda. That's that's such a powerful um, and maybe underappreciated uh, benefit of strengthening these more regional or local networks. Dr. Mujita Muchengeti, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to speak with us and to share uh, your stories and more about your work with the audience of uh, Vital Talks. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sandy, I found Mamka's and Majita's interviews really interesting. Do you want to kick off our conversation by sharing what it brought up for you? Yeah, I, I've just been struck um, by this notion in my head uh, based on these conversations about the sort of development industrial complex. That is, the, the ways in which development works is so counter to sustainability and locally led initiative taking and I, I listened to this other presentation that Mamka gave about where the sort of donor world and the leadership in public health is. And, and you know, over 80% of that is in the global north, whereas uh, the rest of it, um, 10 to 15% or so, is in the, is in the global, global south. And uh, j- just the way in which I think we're so focused on uh, outcome metrics and so focused on quick results that we don't think about the long-term sustainability of a, a great deal of the development work that is happening. And I was also struck by the, the misalignment between the burden of things like NCDs in Africa, uh, the burden of cancer in Africa, uh, and how that has so lagged in terms of donor attention to those issues, as well as government and political will uh, attention to those issues. So there's I'm just left with the sense of how much there is to do to really both change the way we think about our public health and development practices, as well as to really get much more uh, knowledgeable about what, what the real problems are, how we can address them together locally in locally led ways and how we can sustain the kind of changes that we want to see. What did you think, Steve? I also, very similarly, I thought it was really interesting to listen to Mamka talk about how we might reimagine or rethink, quote unquote, development uh, as being led by the people who it impacts most, by the nations and communities it impacts most. And on the other hand, we see that, you know, from Majita's work, that she's really despite the barriers that the system, both making progress and experiencing that kind of mismatch you were talking about. Um, and 
it brought up for me one of the points our experts in the first podcast episode brought up with that we have to value the process as much as the yeah. outputs or outcomes of our projects. Yeah. And because, you know, even in our work at Vital Strategies, I thought, how can we spend more time ensuring that the lessons from one set of partners are trans are being spent translated into something that another partner can can learn from and, and back and forth. Because as you said, public health as a field is so methodologically an almost formulaic approach to how we pick apart problems. But we have to look yeah. at how do we pull these this this collaboration notion into that, into those formulas. Right. And also, you know, just thinking about Medita's reflection on how there needs to be more surveillance and epi and data collection work vis-a-vis cancer and NCDs, but certainly from the viewpoint of the cancer registry that she runs in South Africa in collaboration with other collaborating centers on cancer registries, but the need to also uh, think about the, the importance of data to drive some of these conversations. So they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, being thoughtfully epidemiologically sound in public health is also an important tool, but how do we how do we, uh, and I, the royal we, uh, as, as a public health community, how do we make sure that that is done in a way that can be useful and be funded adequately? And I'll just conclude another thought that I had, again, building off of one of the perspectives. I think Keisha Harris brought this up in our first episode, is that, you know, you have to live, as, I, as people who work in this field, we have to live in that tension between wanting to jump on making these systems more equitable and really feeling need to change fast, but also recognizing personally that, you know, these were systems, uh, these colonialist, you know, systems have been built up over centuries and it will take a long time to change them. And we have to have, you know, very, um, you know, realistic notions about how we can change them incrementally and recognize that in a few decades or in a decade, um, you know, they could look different, but, but it will take time and, and energy to get there. And in the meantime, the work that we're doing is also critically important because it's urgent. It is urgent yep. in saving people's lives. Yeah. Yep. I, I was also really encouraged by both Monka's and Majita's discussions about the, the South to South collaboration that's happening, both within Africa, but within other parts of the world, in other regions of the world. And that's really uh, an encouraging move forward. I think this idea that we've got to stop depending on the old systems, the colonial systems of doing things, and create our own systems and our, create our own mutual self-interest in these collaborations. And, and a lot of that is stuff that we talk about a lot. People getting a seat at the table, uh, recognizing that uh, that we need to upend some of the power structures that have been so intact for so long. Um, and even th- those of us who think that we're doing God's work, so to speak, in in, in uh, social change, social justice, public health work, really have to sort of look hard at ourselves and look hard at the organizations that we continue to um, accept a certain status quo within and to really start to challenge some of those precepts and some of those uh, traditions that we, we really need to, to start to question very seriously. 
Listeners, I hope you found today's conversation interesting. And if you're interested in how global health can become more effective and more equitable, if you've enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. We have more uh, topics and guests coming up on the Vital Talks podcast, including investigating the concepts of mutual aid, looking at new models of power, and pathways to leadership in public health. Also, give us a visit at vitalstrategies.org. Subscribe to our e-newsletter where you can find news, resources, and insights tailored to your interests like NCD prevention, equity, urban health, environmental health, and much more. And if you have any feedback or thoughts, feel free to drop us a line at vitaltracks at vitalstrategies.org. This is Steve Hamill. And Sandy Mullen. Signing off for the Vital Talks podcast.